0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Something by Hilaire Belloc. Chapter 9. The Tree of Knowledge. The nation known to history as the Nepthelo Seclumena Zenoi, or more shortly, the nepoi inhabited a fruitful and prosperous district consisting in a portion of the mainland and certain islands situated in the pyrocholian sea and had there for countless centuries enjoyed a particular form of government which it is not difficult to describe for it was religious and arranged upon the principle that no ancient custom might be changed lest such changes should come about through the lapse of time or the evil passions of men, the citizens of the aforesaid nation had them very clearly engraved in a dead language and upon bronze tablets which they fixed upon the doors of their principal temple, where it stood upon a hill outside the city. And it was their laudable custom to entrust the interpretation of them not to aged judges but to little children, for they argued that we increase in wickedness with years, and that no one is safe from the aged, but the children are, alone of the articulately speaking race, truth-tellers. Therefore, upon the first day of the year, which falls in that country at the time of sowing, they would take one hundred boys of ten years of age, chosen by lot, they would make these hundred, who had previously for one year received instruction in their sacred language, write each a translation of the simple code engraved upon the bronze tablets, It was invariably discovered that these artless compositions varied only according to the ability of the lads to construe and that some considerable proportion of them did accurately show forth in the vernacular of the time the meaning of those ancestral laws they had further a magistrate known as the archon whose business it was to administrate these customs and to punish those who broke them and this archon when if he proposed something contrary to custom in the opinion of not less than a hundred petitioners, was judged by a court of children. In this fashion for thousands of years did the Nepoi proceed with their calm and ordinary lives, enjoying themselves like so many Grigs, and utterly untroubled by those broils and imaginations of state which disturbed their neighbours. There was a legend among them, upon which the whole of this constitution was based, that a certain hero, one Melik, being in stature twelve foot high, and no less than ninety-three inches round the chest, had landed in their country a hundred and fifty thousand years previously, and finding them very barbarous, slaying one another, and unacquainted with the use of letters, the precious metals, or the art of usury, had instructed them in civilization, endowed them with letters, a coinage, police, lawyers, instruments of torture and all the other requisites of a great state and had finally drawn up for them this code of law or custom which they carefully preserved engraved upon the tablets of bronze which were set upon the walls of the chief temple on the hill outside the city within the temple itself its great shrine and so to speak its very cause of being was the hero's tomb he lay therein covered with plates of gold and it was confidently asserted and strictly and unquestionably believed that at some unknown time in the future he would come out to rule them for ever in a millennial fashion though heaven knows they were happy enough as it was among their customs was this that certain appointed officers would at every change in the moon proclaim the former existence and virtue of Melek, his residence in the tomb and his claims to authority to enter the tomb, indeed, was death, but there was proof of the whole story in documents which were carefully preserved in the temple, and which were from time to time consulted and verified. The whole structure of Napoleon society reposed upon the sanctity of this story, upon the presence of the hero in his tomb, and of his continued authority, for with this was intertwined, or rather upon this was based, the further sanctity of their custom things so proceeded without hurt or cloud until upon one most unfortunate day a certain man bearing the vulgar name of Megalocrates, which signifies a person whose health requires the use of a wide headgear discovered that a certain herb which grew in great abundance in their territory and had hitherto been thought useless would serve almost every purpose of the table sufficing according to its preparation for meat bread vegetables and salt and, if properly distilled, for a liquor that would make the Nepoy even more drunk than did their native spirits. From this discovery ensued a great plenty throughout the land. The population very rapidly increased. The fortunes of the wealthy grew to double, treble, and four times those which had formerly been known. The middle classes adopted a novel accent in speech, and a gait hitherto unusual. WHILE GREAT NUMBERS OF THE POOR ACQUIRED THE POWER OF LIVING UPON SO SMALL A PROPORTION OF FOUL AIR, DULL LIGHT, STAGNANT WATER, AND MANGY CRUSTS, AS WOULD HAVE ASTONISHED THEIR NICER FOREFATHERS. MEANWHILE THIS GREAT PERIOD OF PROGRESS COULD NOT BUT LEAD TO FURTHER DISCOVERIES, AND THE NEPOI HAD SOON PRODUCED WHOLE COLLEGES IN WHICH WERE STUDIED THE ARTS USEFUL TO MANKIND, AND CONSTANTLY DISCOVERED A LARGER AND LARGER NUMBER OF SURPRISING AND USEFUL THINGS. At last the Nepoi, though this perhaps will hardly be credited, were capable of travelling underground, flying through the air, conversing with men a thousand miles away in a moment of time, and committing suicide painlessly whenever there arose occasion for that exercise. It may be imagined with what reference the authors of all these boons, the members of the learned colleges, were regarded and how their opinions had, in the eyes and ears of the Nepoi, an unanswerable character. Now it so happened that in one of these colleges a professor, of more than ordinary position, emitted one day the opinion that Malik had lived only half as long ago as was commonly supposed. In proof of this he put forward the undoubted truth that if Malik had lived at the time he was supposed to have lived, then he would have lived twice as long ago... "'as he, the professor, said that he had lived. "'The more old-fashioned and stupid of the Nepoi "'murmured against such opinions, "'and though they humbly confessed themselves "'unable to discover any flaw in the professor's logic, "'they were sure he was wrong somewhere, "'and they were greatly disturbed. "'But the opinion gained ground, "'and what is more this fruitful and intelligent surmise "'upon the part of the professor "'bred a whole series of further theories upon Melek each of which contradicted the last but one, and the latest of which was always of so limpid and so self-evident a truth, as to be accepted by whatever was intelligent and energetic in the population, and especially by the young unmarried women of the wealthier classes. In this manner the epic of Melek was reduced to five, to three, to two, to one thousand years, then to five hundred, and at last to one hundred and fifty. But here was a trouble. The records of the state, which had been carefully kept for many centuries, showed no trace of Mellick's coming during any part of the time, but always referred to him as a long-distant forerunner. There was not even any mention of a man twelve foot high, nor even of one a little over ninety-three inches round the chest, at last it was proposed by an individual of great courage that he might be allowed to open the tomb of Melek, and afterwards if they so pleased, suffer death. This privilege was readily granted to him by the Archon. The worthy reformer therefore prized open the sacred shrine and found within it absolutely nothing whatsoever. Upon this there arose among the Nepoi all manner of schools and discussions some saying this and some that, but none with the certitude of old. Their customs fell into disrepute, and even the very professors themselves were occasionally doubted when they laid down the law upon matters in which they alone were competent, as for instance when they asserted that the moon was made of peculiarly delicious edible substance which increased in savour when it was preserved in the storerooms of the housewives, or when they affirmed with every appearance of truth that No man did evil, and that willful murder, arson, cruelty cruelty to the innocent and the weak, and deliberate fraud, were of no more disadvantage to the general state, or to men single, than the drinking of a cup of cold water. So things proceeded until one day, when all custom and authority had fallen into this really lamentable deliquescence. Fleets were observed upon the sea manned by men-at-arms, the admiral of which sent a short message to the archon, proposing that the people of the country should send to him and his one half of their yearly wealth for ever, or, so the message proceeded, take the consequences. Upon the archon, communicating this to the people, there arose at once an infinity of babble, some saying one thing and some another, some proposing to pay neighbouring savages to come in and fight the invaders, others saying it would be cheaper to compromise with a large sum, but the most part agreeing that the wisest thing would be for the Archon and his great-aunt to go out to the fleet in a little boat, and persuade the enemy's admiral, as they could surely easily do, that while most human acts were of doubtful responsibility, and not really wicked, yet the invasion, and above all the impoverishment of the Nepoi, was so foul or wrong as would certainly call down upon its fiendish perpetrators, the fires of heaven. While the archon and his great-aunt were rowing out in the little boat, a few doddering old men and superstitious females slunk off to consult the bronze tablets, and there found, under Schedule Twelve, these words, If an enemy threatens the state, you shall arm and repel him. In their superstition, the poor old chaps, with their half-daft female devotees accompanying them, tottered back to the crowds to persuade them to some ridiculous fanaticism or other, based on no better authority than the non-existent Melek and his absurd and exploded authority. Judge of their horror when, as they neared the city, they saw from the height whereon the temple stood that the invaders had landed. And having put to the sword all the inhabitants without exception, were proceeding to make an inventory of the goods and to settle the place as conquerors. The admiral summoned this remnant of the nation, and hearing what they had to say, treated them with the greatest courtesy and kindness, and pensioned them off for their remaining years, during which period they so instructed him and his fighting men in the mysteries of their religion as quite to convert them, and in a sense, to found the Napoleon state over again. But it should be mentioned that the admiral, by way of precaution, changed that part of the religion which related to the tomb of Melek and situated the shrine in the very centre of the crater of an active volcano in the neighbourhood, which by night and day, at every season of the year, belched forth molten rock, so that none could approach it within fifteen miles. The End of Chapter 9